of you know, I'm not from the South, and so when I moved uh, to the Savannah area, um, let's see, 12 years ago, uh, it was a bit of a shock to my system, um, and, uh, and ever since then have been learning, understanding, uh, trying to understand and uh, kind of see what, what's going on here. And, uh, and as it pertains to relations, uh, particularly between those who are white and those who are black, uh, our conversations have revolved around how does the church respond to all of this and how should what we're saying sound differently from what we're hearing uh, in the world. And uh, especially as our, uh, our growing together, as our two churches have walked together, um, that we, we thought it was an appropriate time, especially in light of the cultural climate of not just our region anymore, but it's kind of exploded once again on the national stage and even internationally that many people are talking about what's going on in America. And so we want to uh, spend some time tonight exchanging ideas on these things. So we have uh, some questions for one another that we uh, think will help kind of direct things for us that we're just going to ask and respond to. We also have um, providentially uh, some, uh, I've got two videos from a friend uh, named uh, Tomi Oladipo. And Tomi is a well, he is officially a Nigerian resident, but he is from Kenya, and he has a British accent. He works for the BBC, so he's all messed up. But he was, uh, <laughs> he was visiting with us this past week, and we asked for him to give us uh, some uh, objective insight into what he sees, and uh, in particular, uh, what he thinks with regards to how the church responds to these kinds of issues. So we'll hear from him tonight as well. So um, we'll get started. Maybe, uh, James, if you want to, do you have anything you want to say before we start with our questions? Yes, I think it's, uh, yeah, I think uh, as we look at Tomei's video, he gives us a pretty interesting um, maybe point of view. He's, he's black, he's African, uh, but he does most of his work um, in the UK for a while. Now he's going to Kenya. He was here in the States um, this past week, and he was able to share some insight with us of some of the things that he faced in Virginia and how he was able to give us the objective point of view. And I think Nick, myself, and Josh well, I think he was well informative in his approach. So I think when we listen to his video, to, to hear his unique position, he's well-traveled. He's a reporter with the BBC, um, so he's, he's well-traveled. I think he gives us a, a, a clear, objective uh, opinion or outlook on what's going on. Some of us having been in this region or, you know, this country, for those who are, who are not immigrants, uh, you've had some interaction with various points of views and ideas. So we all have been touched by it to some degree. Now, whether we've been recipients of uh, participants in it, I think that's left um, for personal examination. But I think Tomei gives us a very unique position, having not been touched on either side, so to speak. So I think you can put some, put some stock in what he has to say. You want to start with him? Yeah, I think okay. that would be good. All right, so we're going to play our first. We've got two videos uh, from Tommy. Uh, the first one uh, on just his perspective and what he sees. Always a pleasure to um, 
to talk to people, to meet people from around the world who um, are called by our Lord, just as I have been. Uh, that's what unites us. It's that one faith. It's knowing that Christ is the one who um, is the head of the body, all of us, the universal church, and what an honor to be a part of the church. And so it's always... You know, when we're on the other side of the world and we hear stories of what's going on in America and in particular the current one about uh, the, the polarization regarding uh, the, the racial issues, it's saddening to hear that, um, to see what's going on. It's even worse when we see that the church is divided over these things and it's something we pray about, we, we pray for reconciliation, we pray that that you know there'll be healing but why are these things happening if we do believe the same thing if we are united by Christ then why can't we um, agree over issues to do with um, you know justice and race and equality and maybe that comes from first our understanding of this gospel recognizing that that God in his holiness went across the gulf of sin and reached out to us and picked us up, saved us and brought us into his kingdom, into his family as heirs of his kingdom and to see that and then to see people who have been saved by this very grace not being able to reach out, not being able to um, just have a regular conversation or just to look at people as their brothers but to have these filters over their eyes is really a painful thing to work to, to watch and um, to see that there is no difference between the way the people in the church are reacting to these issues from the way the people in the world are reacting is also another painful one because surely we have different worldviews surely we see things differently even though we experience uh, the same things there is the reality, yes, there is that race issue, there is racism, there is ignorance. But then how should a Christian respond to the, these things? And I think we should be aware that in this world we live in, injustice is always going to be there. We're not promised uh, a fairy tale life. This is always going to be here for as long as we're here. And we should know that perfection is only going to come in the next world when we're glorified. Uh, when we get to spend eternity with uh, with God, and so um, to have this false view that things are supposed to be perfect here, expecting perfection from unbelievers, expecting our governments who are full of evil people to do certain things, expecting our man-made systems to operate like godly systems, I think, um, is where we, we might be having the wrong view of things, and maybe we should go back to the scriptures, maybe we should uh, be a bit more humble, I would say. And if everybody just took a step back and realized that, yes, we are full of, um, we've been overwhelmed by what's going on, we're in pain, but how much more painful was it for God to watch um, his creation turn against him and, and hate him? And 
how much humility did it take for him to then reach out, to come as man, to come into a fallen world, to live through all the things we live through, to be spat upon and mocked and scorned and then put in a cross, even in his goodness. Can we look at that as an example and mirror that? And as brothers in Christ, can we use that to reach out to one another and reconcile? Um, this is not about black or white or whatever. I mean, if you are, um, I always say to people that the problem is not when a policeman shoots someone. That's not when the problem starts. The problem starts from your everyday going to church. So if I go to church as a black man and I go to a black church, not because I live in a black neighborhood, but because I feel more comfortable in a black church. If that's my reason for going to that church, then maybe um, when the white police officer shoots a black man, um, that's not the beginning of the problem, but right from where, where I was, because when that incident happens, it's already clear what side I'm going to take, based on the foundations I've already built. And so I think for us as Christians, we need to be aware of these things beforehand and we need to pray that the Lord will show us uh, uh, the areas in which we can glorify Him best and not just to um, go with our own comforts and go with our own uh, preconceived ideas. Fine, there is a history. We all understand there is a history. I don't understand how African Americans feel because I don't have that history tagged to me. But it doesn't take anything away from the transforming power of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And if we uh, look at things through that lens, if we, um, you know, if we are able to detach ourselves and not let these things be about us and how we feel, but rather what is pleasing unto God, then maybe we might be able to move forward on these issues. So I just appeal to you brothers that um, we'll consider the gospel in all of this and look at how good God has been to us, and in that light, show that love to our brothers. So we have, we have ten questions uh, that we've devised. I've posed five for Pastor Nick, and he posed five for me. My questions were a bit simple. His questions are not. I disagree. <laughs> it's the other way around. Um, so, you know, I'm going to get to my page here. So my first question to uh, Pastor Nick is, should the church speak out publicly on social policy and or issues? If so, to what extent? If not, why? Well, it's a big issue because the church is always in some way, or I'll say Christians first, are always trying to say something about everything. Um, And there's a lot of ways we can go with this. I think one of the things that's important for us to remember is that God has established two kingdoms. And we walked through the Gospel of Luke a while ago and in that have talked a lot about the two kingdoms. Uh, There's a common kingdom of man that we share with all of mankind always and everywhere that was really established with the Noahic covenant when Noah... Uh, and his family were uh, saved from the flood, and God established with them what they were to do. And then there's the kingdom of God that we as God's people are citizens of. But as citizens of the kingdom of God, we're also citizens of this common kingdom. And so um, 
there are some important distinctions to be made within that in terms of how we respond to um, these kinds of issues as they come up. Um, am I responding as a citizen of the common kingdom or am I responding as a citizen of the kingdom of God? Well, as Christians, we need to be responding as citizens of the kingdom of God. Um, and so the, the question, I guess, the answer up front is it kind of depends. Should the church speak out publicly on um, social policy or social issues? It depends, and it depends on whether or not the Bible itself speaks on the issues. Um, and in such, they should be handled within the local church or in conjunction with other local churches, that churches are coming together and making statements on these things. But I think the really important thing in all of it is that we are taking a biblical narrative and not a cultural narrative. Um, so I'll give you an example. I think it was last year when the Supreme Court of the United States decided that the Defense of Marriage Act was unconstitutional. And so they struck that from the laws and... Um, and so that kind of opened the door, and then a lot of states we've seen have started legalizing uh, homosexual marriage in each state. So the elders here, we decided that was an important issue that we needed to address as a church. Um, but we had to ask some questions. So what is the narrative we're going to take? Um, we understood it was important to address this biblically, but not politically. And so... What do we talk about? Well, what does the Bible say about relationships between men and women or men and men and women and women? Uh, what do we call those? Uh, what does the Bible teach about homosexuality? What does it te teach about heterosexuality? So that was what we felt was important to address and to be thinking about and talking about as a church. But when it comes to issues of, well, was that decision constitutional? Or was that some, is that something the state should decide or the federal government should decide? Those are political, common kingdom questions that the church uh, shouldn't be concerning itself with in terms of making statements. Um, but when it comes to, here's what we understand marriage to be, here's why, here's what God says, that's our realm. So when it comes to all sorts of issues, abortion is a big one, um, but man, you could go all over, global warming or whatever the, the hot topic of the day is. Can Christians as the church have something to say about this? Well, sure. But what's the narrative and what's the goal? Um, I think it's really important to recognize that Jesus and Paul were not uh, they were not trying to re-engineer the culture they lived in. They were creating a new society. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Jesus is saying, if you are members of my kingdom, this is what your life will be. Not try to be these things or, um, you know, this is kind of what we're hoping to do among all these people. But he's saying, this is a different new society of people. Mm -hmm. And as members of my kingdom, this is what that will look like. So they weren't re-engineering what already existed. It was corrupt and fallen and broken, and they recognized that at every turn. They're looking at it and saying, Jesus has established something new, and his people are going to respond in a different way. So... Um, Yes, yes, it is important on certain issues for the church to respond. Um, but I think the church, what we don't see is that the church collectively should have one voice because mm -hmm. we're going to one source. Mm -hmm. um, 
And that's, that's where the difficulty comes in because we don't have that one voice and there's been a lot um, on that. So, um, again, it comes back to are we addressing things the Bible addressed? So, should the United States have a national health care policy? Well, I certainly have my personal opinions about that and I might add that they're very strong opinions. But I cannot honestly open my Bible and say, uh, thus saith the Lord about national health care. And so I need to distinguish between those issues. And as the church, that's probably not something we address because it's not an issue of the kingdom of God. It's an issue of the common kingdom of man. Um, and so where that comes in, you know, for pastors especially, there's times when um, uh, I will want to say things publicly, but not in church and from the pulpit, but maybe in some public arena where I have to be very careful to say, well, this is me speaking as citizen of this community and not me as pastor and representative of Ephesus Church. There's a huge distinction to be made. And I'll say for anyone that is uh, interested in those things, it's perfectly legitimate to be interested in participating in politics and things. Our confession of faith addresses that in chapter 24. Are you interested in politics and bringing change through policy and that sort of thing? Great. Run for office and be a godly, uh, you know, a person in local office or federal office or whatever you want to do. Um, but all of this, I think, we need to think through. Does, you know, does the Bible speak to issues of justice? Absolutely. Issues of mercy and all that. Uh, you know, um, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. But on top of that, we have to realize as well that the Bible speaks of, you know, uh, in the midst of justice, there's fairness. Have I weighed all the facts and made sure I have a good understanding of what's going on before I draw conclusions? Um, You know, all of these things that kind of play into how we're going to talk about them. At the end of the day, because the church is so different from the world, I don't think we can avoid the fact that every time something happens that the church speaks into that it should sound very different from what the world is saying. Um, there's probably not going to be a lot of issues, and particularly as we move forward as a society that are going to sound the same. So um, the end of the day, here's my question. Do, uh, you know, that I want to be asking through all of this is, do I really expect change to come through social policy and political involvement, or do I really believe that the gospel is the power of God onto salvation and it's changing the hearts of men and women that brings about change in culture. Mm -hmm. And do I want to be known as the guy in the church that's always talking about political issues or do I want to be known as the guy in the church that's always talking about Jesus? Mm -hmm. And I think that's, you know, a distinction that needs to be made and a really um, helpful thing to be thinking about as we think about whether or not to address certain things. Hmm. I think that's a really good answer, And I think I drew that question, I drew that question out of the, probably out of the uh, Christian media, maybe um, looking at things like Facebook and Twitter, uh, because that's how our nation communicates. I mean, it's not op-ed pieces in, you know, the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times. We communicate through Facebook, through Twitter. Kind of sad that we've been, we've reduced our journalism to that, but that's what it is. Um, And when you look at that, I think that, the church, and you know, I use that ubiquitous term to include all of us, 
but individual Christians find themselves maybe on a defense or offense, depending on which side of the issue you're on, saying that the church should say something. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's always a want for someone to stand up and make a comment. And we don't, we don't have, like, the, the church doesn't have, like, a spokesman. Yeah. Like, these are local issues we need to deal with in the local church. Correct. A higher view of the local church, mm-hmm. I think, helps to kind of sort these out collectively. I mean, unless you were Rome, you don't have one collective voice. Right, right. So you're going to have differing hues and, and, and maybe takes on certain positions, right? Mm-hmm. So. Good. C- can I just ask one question on the heels of that? And I know we've got to move on. What medium does the church use to address these issues when they, when they need to be? Uh, I, th- I think that um, Christians today, especially given all of the various platforms we have to say something, uh, we think very highly of our own opinions. Um, as, if we focus on the local church, that is our responsibility. Pastorally, that's our responsibility uh, as the body of Christ, with it, as members of the body of Christ. That's our responsibility within the church. Um, I think the local church has the responsibility collectively to have an understanding of these. And then as ambassadors of Christ, we're talking about these things in our workplaces and whatnot, that we're having the conversation that we've been able to work through in the context of the church. Mm-hmm. So... I don't think everyone and their brother needs to find a way to be really loud and tell everyone in the world what they think. Mm. Okay. So I wanted to work through uh, with James some of the um, kind of practical outworking of a lot of the discussion um, that it's been a discussion that's been going on for many years uh, culturally and that has just kind of come right back out to the forefront. So um, what do you see, and specifically anything inherently flawed, about an idea that, uh, it was really popular in the 90s, but it's really coming back again, that white Americans should apologize to black Americans in the 21st century for any kind of sin in terms of slavery in the 19th uh, and 20th centuries, civil rights movement, uh, mid-20th century, um, is there a place for that? And if so, what is it? If not, what's the deal? Uh, you know, talk about reparations for slavery and those kinds of things. And you talk on some of those issues. Well, those, are, those are first issues that are near and dear to a lot of Americans, but I want to kind of hone our discussion in, in the church, maybe if, if I can start there. Um, because I think Solomon makes it very clear in Ecclesiastes that... Um, that there's no perfect justice and there's no perfect system of righteousness outside of Christ on this earth. Um, we're not going to do it all right all the time. So, you know, looking to a man or woman to give us the final answer, I think, is, um, is, a, bit, is a bit silly, in my opinion. Um, but no, I, 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 well, let me say this. I do think that there is something inherently flawed with the idea that white Americans, and I use that term in the broadest sense possible, every white person I see should not have to apologize to every minority or Native American uh, for slavery um, or for things that happened in the 19th and 20th century, Uh, even through the Jim Crow uh, era of segregation. Um, 
you were not born in 68. You were not born in 60, 59, 55, or I can keep going back. So to make you um, apologize to me because of what happened to my ancestors, I am essentially placing a yoke upon you to do that which God has not called you to do. So in a sense, I am usurping Christ from your conscience and your heart, and I am literally setting myself there um, by forcing you to respond to me for something that your ancestors didn't do because they weren't here. All right, so that's the first thing. And one of the base foundations I think it's inherently flawed, most Americans, um, we have a high immigrant population. Most folks are third, fourth generation. They didn't own slaves. The folks who are living today, I mean, if their parents or grandparents or well, great-great-grandparents, you have to go back nearly three generations if slavery took place in their family. How can you now make a person apologize for something they had nothing, they had nothing to do with? That's just like saying I should apologize for every, uh, every, every black person who does anything wrong. Or, or I should know why all black people do what they do. I mean, it's, it's, it's insane. It, it, it comes from a defunct position. Um, you know, we talk about, you know, the civil rights movement. I always divide time, at least in our country, in three particular kind of epochs, so to speak. You know, pre-Reconstruction, so the slavery era, right? And then I usually separate it in the post-Reconstruction era. So we're now going into the Jim Crow segregation era. And then I look at the post-segregation era. We as a country have made strides. We as a people, the human race in America, we've made strides. Are we perfect? No. Is there room for more change? Yes. Should we work on it? Yes. How is the church working on it? In times like this, we're working on it. When the world sees this, they see something inherently different in light of the climate that's in our country today. Look. So, we are in a post-segregation era. I cannot make anyone apologize to me for something that happened in the pre-Reconstruction era. You were not born, you were were not thought about. So, yes, I think there's something inherently flawed about that Um, in a broad sense. I mean, we can drill down to some nuanced things. Should the government respond in certain ways? You know, that's a whole other argument. Um, you know, there's this thing in post-segregationist era of, of you know, in the 90s it was, it was um, well, in the late 50s it was white power. In the uh, early 90s it was white guilt. So you see white power turn into white guilt. And by white guilt, I mean if you were white in America in the 90s, you had to almost feel guilty. Um, but you're 30... How old am I? 32. 32. He had nothing to do with that. Do you see? So why should I impose white guilt upon him? He had nothing to do with it. And not only that, to impose that upon a broad group of people, what you're essentially doing is is slandering and including Christ's people. That's dangerous. That is dangerous. You're including... Christ's people in something that, yes, is heinous historically. But by saying white people, I've just included someone who, first of all, had nothing to do with it. I've disenfranchised him from me. 
I now force him to say something to me before, before I act lovingly to him, that becomes a problem. And just to kind of speed up, because I can be very long-winded, uh, you know, comments like, you know, reparations, we need reparations. That was the big push in the 90s. Now, there was a reason for that. Reparations in itself are not bad, and I'm going to tell you why. Reparations in itself are not bad. In, um, in 1988, the, let's see here, the Japanese Americans under President Ronald Reagan uh, was passed the Civil Liberties Act of 1988. And what the Civil Liberties Act of 1988 did was provide $20,000 per Japanese citizen that physically partook in concentration of internment camps. <laughs> Going back a while. But uh, participated in internment camps uh, during the, uh, during the uh, Second uh, World War. Um, $20,000 were given to all of those who where basically their rights were stripped from them and they were put in internment camps. I believe reparations were necessary. Their land was taken from them, their homes were taken, they were confiscated. Many of those folks ended up uh, relocating to South America. So reparations in themselves are not wrong. But I think if you're going to apply reparations, reparations, it has to be to the persons who were disenfranchised. So in essence, reparations are not wrong. Can I, as a a black American born in 1981, and yes, I'm only 33, contrary to popular belief. <laughs> I can't get reparations for my sixth great-grandfather. Then where does it end? And the question then is, who pays it? Mm-hmm. So are reparations in themselves wrong? No. In 1990, we passed the uh, Native American Grave Protection and Reparations Act of 1990. Again, we're under a, another Republican regime uh, in the 90s, and they passed the Reparations Act and, Act, and what this was specifically designed to do was to reimburse Native Americans for, uh, for their, their items that were confiscated over the years, that were placed in museums. So it forced museums, museums to either pay these tribes money or return the artifacts to them. So historically, reparations have never been bad. The problem is, is when we try to apply reparations with the 150-year gap, that's problematic. Because who pays it, and where does it end? Mm-hmm. You, you know, if you're a second or third, fourth generation immigrant, are you now required to pay reparations for something your family had no part, no part of? And as the church, I think this is where we've been given a ministry of reconciliation. Well, we've got to reconcile that back unto God. That's my short answer. Yeah, it's good. I don't have anything to add. Okay. Okay, Nick's second question. To what extent can a Christian embrace his or her ethnic background before it becomes sinful? Give some positive and negative examples. <laughs> I did not uh, choose to be born. I did not choose who my parents were going to be and um, what kind of world I was going to come into. I am what I am and who I am by the grace of God. 
And um, so as I think about that, I can honestly say I've never really thought much at all about how proud I am to be a white man. (laughs) It's never really been much of anything I've thought about. I have traveled to 24 countries, I think. I am very thankful to be an American. I'm very thankful. Every time I go somewhere else, I see what's going on. I see corruption and brokenness and systems and all that. And um, while I can see that sort of thing in our own, um, at the end of the day, I'm really thankful to come home and say, I'm a citizen here in this common kingdom here in the United States. But I could have very easily, in God's providence, uh, you know, been a citizen of some other um, country and... Um, so from their perspective, and as we talk to other people from other parts of the world, recognize that they see that we have challenges and we have temptations that they don't have to deal with as Christians. The thing that we fail to recognize is how much things like Jesus saying, it is hard for a rich man to go to the kingdom of heaven, um, how much that applies to us collectively, all of us, <laughs> because of the culture and the times and the place that we live. Um, and so for those things, I look at and say those are specific challenges that I need to consider in light of my being an American and who I am you know, as that American citizen. But you know, as I think of, so a few biblical examples. So we just finished Jonah, the book of Jonah today. Uh, Jonah did not want to go to the Ninevites because at the end of the day, he hated the Assyrians and he was a racist. He hated them because they weren't uh, Israelites. Um, and God was not happy with his continued um, you know, defiance. Uh, I think of uh, Luke chapter 9 and the disciples when they're with Jesus and they see the Samaritans and um, they're not responding to Jesus in the way that they had hoped they would. And they said, oh, do you want us to, uh, we, we just, uh, they just got done doing all these miracles. Should we call down fire from heaven to destroy them? <laughs> and Jesus calls them off and uh, he kind of gives them a glimpse into the future of what he's working to bring even them onto himself. Um, And then another uh, very glaring example to me is in uh, Galatians chapter 2. Paul goes to where Peter was, and Peter is sitting with some Gentiles for a meal uh, who have become Christians, and Judaizers, Jewish people, come in, and as soon as they get there, we get the idea that Peter backed away from the table and stood up and kind of walked away from the whole situation because he didn't want to be seen as identifying with these Gentiles. And Paul writes in his letter to the Galatians, I confronted him to his face over this issue. And Paul's the one who says, you know, we're neither, uh, we're neither uh, Jew nor Greek or uh, slave nor free nor male nor female. We are one in Christ Jesus. And so... Um, I think when it comes to a specific ethnic identity and saying this is, uh, this is who I am and uh, something more than I am who I am because God created me this way and I'm a part of the body of Christ, I'm glad I'm a citizen of where I'm at and I want to be productive in these things and work for the welfare of the city. Beyond that, we don't see a lot of favorable examples in the scriptures of this idea that we're kind of beating our chests over whatever our you know, 
ethnic background is. Um, is is it wrong to be thankful that I'm a white guy in America? I, I don't know. There's nothing wrong to be thankful about that. But that's not who I identify as. I want to identify as a Christian, as a man who is loved by God, who's been forgiven because of Christ, and who's a part of his body. That's who we should be identifying as, as the body of Christ, brothers and sisters uh, within the church of Christ. Some would, some would hear that response and argue that, and I'm going to just quote you, being a white man in America, you don't identify with your whiteness, but you identify primarily with your Christianity. Some would argue that it is hard for them to solely identify with their Christianity because societally they're identified as maybe castigated as animals. Mm-hmm. So while they, may, they, they desire to identify with their Christianity, societally they're identified as something either subpar, inferior, less than, or animalistic. How do you respond to those people in light of that statement? <laughs> it's a loaded question. That's yeah. Fine, yeah. Uh, well, what other people think about who we are and how they want to identify doesn't change the fact that we are or we aren't a part of the body of Christ. Mm. So either I am a Christian and part of the body of Christ and that's where I identify or I'm not. Mm. And if I'm not, I'm going to find all sorts of other ways to categorize myself. And so... Um, you know, just as that's the case here, you go out west where I'm from, uh, black-white tension was not an issue. It was uh, Hispanics and Native Americans, and they were always going at it together. And they had these kinds of ideas about each other. And so I could stand on the outside of that and look at and see what was going on and say, I don't understand why you think this about each other. Um, but at the end of the day, asking, are you a Christian? Are you my brother? Or are you my sister? And look, we're never, as Tommy said, we're never going to live in a, uh, a realm of perfect justice. I think you mentioned that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so do I continue to lay claim in this, or do I move to identify with what Paul is saying? There's no, there's no Greek uh, or Jew. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are one in Christ. And regardless of what everyone around me wants to identify me as, that's who I am in Christ. Mm. Amen. All right, so uh, I, the idea of affirmative action, mm. do you see that working uh, for or against uh, what it was designed to help? Well, let me first say, uh, in theory, um, I see affirmative action as a hindrance to ethnic progression. That's in theory. All right. So in a perfect society, it would, be, uh, it would hamper to some degree ethnic progression. That is, in theory, that is in a perfect society. However, um, in light of our fallen world and the history of our country, um, in some sense, depending on where you're at, I think it's still necessary. Um, You know, I think about, you know, as I was preparing for this, you know, I look at the first forced action of affirmative action was signed by an executive order of of John Kennedy. Um, The second enforcement of this affirmative action was signed uh, by executive order in 65 by Lyndon Johnson and again to include gender discrimination in 67. So we generally see that executive orders are signed into law or, or made to be law or instituted in our country's legal system 
because something fails to pass the legislation, right? So the House or the Senate, someone blocked whatever bill that was coming down the pipeline. So I think the fact that there's an executive order signed proves that the tension in our country was not favorable for minorities. Um, the Civil Rights Act of 64 um, and again 68, education was at the forefront of the affirmative action agenda from the black American community. Education was at the forefront of it. From the executive branch of our government, work was at the uh, uh, centrality of, of his signing the executive order, that is John Kennedy. He signs the executive order for the purpose of ending discrimination in terms of government jobs. That's, that's why he signed the first affirmative action executive order in 61. 65, Lyndon Johnson kind of reaffirms that. In 67, he reaffirms it and kind of includes uh, gender discrimination in there. So in theory, it hinders our society, but because we're fallen and we cannot erase um, that type of sin and discrimination, I see the value of it in certain sects. Um, in, two, in 1990, I think it was, I think it was 1990, uh, California passed, I think it was Proposition 209. And Proposition 209 ended affirmative action in uh, a pretty liberal state today, I think we could all agree, of California. What was interesting is statistically when they ended the uh, affirmative action mandate, I think the same as Michigan did here recently, that the test scores of the average college applicant went up, I think, by 15%. Um, the fear is that if you end affirmative action in any way, that everything becomes all white again, right? That's the minority position. If you end affirmative action, everything becomes sort of white controlled again. Uh, but I think California being such a, you know, demographically being such a diverse place proves something to us that in a in the right scenario, affirmative action is actually a hindrance. It was a hindrance in California, mm. especially where 38% uh, by a study I think did at UC Berkeley, 38% of the applicants at UC Berkeley in 1990, according to, uh, I think it was, um, uh, what report? Uh, can't remember it off the top of my head, but based upon a report uh, done, 38% of the applicants to UC Berkeley were Asian. And I, you know, when you look at the data, I think UC Berkeley didn't choose anyone based on color. I think they kind of chose them because of SAT scores and ability. So yes, in a perfect scenario, affirmative action is a hindrance. However, we're fallen. Historically, we've proven that as a nation we're fallen. And in certain nuanced situations, I think it's necessary, not just to end color barriers, but to also um, end gender barriers. I mean, there was a time in this country where if you were a woman, uh, they pretty much saw you as a secretary. But the fact that you can be that Proverbs 31 woman and have a fantastically successful business, 70 years ago, you were not seen that way, unless you were sewing or cooking or doing something along those lines. But the fact that you can be an intelligent CEO 
as a woman in America, we see the progression of that. Affirmative action helped that. Um, so I think in, in a perfect scenario, we need to get rid of it. But in some scenarios, hey, it wasn't until 1995 that Mississippi was the last state to ratify the 13th Amendment. The thir- <laughs> I was offended when I read that. <laughs> you know, and the 13th Amendment says that I'm a person and not a piece of property. And it wasn't, and, and here's the sick part. It wasn't that in 1995 they ratified it, Pastor Nick, but they didn't certify, that is, they did not send it properly to the federal government until 2013. Now, we say, oh, that's just a vote. Well, we have a representative republic. Mississippi represents millions of people. And their legislature, for the last 148 years before they're officially certified, said that they conceivably considered me, in a majority sense, they considered me cattle, chattel. They considered me property. They didn't consider me human. Can that be offensive to someone who's living in Mississippi? Absolutely. So the fact that we're still progressing legislatively, I think, proves that in some sense, this is, this is necessary. How does affirmative action affect black, American, uh, black Americans in a negative sense? Well, simply holding a slot for a particular quota of people, you essentially can water down the population of graduates at your school. So if I've, if I've not really qualified to get in this particular school that has a high level of, of, of academia, I mean, it's not that I can't get into a two-year or a four-year local college. I could, but I want to go to Harvard. Um, and you have a substantially higher GPA than me, but I simply want to assert affirmative action rights. I think it can be of a disadvantage to me if I can't operate on that collegiate level, not that I can't learn, right? Um, but simply holding a spot for someone because of the color of their skin solely um, I don't think we find that supported by Scripture in any, in any regard. As a matter of fact, Scripture tells us um, that if a man is not willing to work, we're not to feed him. Now, you say, well, how does, that, how does that play into the system? Well, our system of affirmative action actually turns that on his head. It says that if a man is not able to work, um, you give him more and you give him access to a college education, yet he hadn't finished high school, right? And essentially using affirmative action, he goes to school, he takes out student loans, he fails in two years because he's not applied himself in a very base sense. Now he's saddled with $20,000 in federal student loan debt that he can't pay back because he can't get a decent job, and so it pushes him further and further and further and further. And I have a unique position, having been in automotive finance for years, to see that. So I have a very unique perspective when I say this. So I have seen the disadvantages of it. You know, not, to, not to mention that if there's a slot for 15 black kids in the school and my daughter is more qualified than the next guy, but he happens to you know, not only be black but be black and low income, he now takes a spot that my daughter could have got. Would I have a problem with it then? Yes, I would have a problem with it then. So again, that's my short version. <laughs> okay. We'll do the lightning round now. Okay. okay. Yeah. yeah, I think we have to, don't we? <laughs> Gosh. 
Sam and I talk about this all the time. I just can't help it. <laughs> okay, so who is responsible for domestic missions within the inner city, and why doesn't it seem to be taking place? Domestic missions in the inner city, as with all missions, is the job of the local church. Um, it certainly helps to be uh, familiar and a part of the context. So it makes a lot more sense to me that Christ Center Reformed Baptist Church would be involved in West Savannah as opposed to Ephesus Church. Um, we would be, uh, at least initially, like fish out of water, not quite understanding um, what's, where we are and who we're with. Um, and that's an important, that's an important thing. Um, but the, the church as a whole, that's our responsibility. And so, um, do we, uh, take part in that by necessarily going and doing that ourselves? Not necessarily. It may look like CCRBC has a ministry going on in the inner city and Ephesus Church supports that ministry in some way, shape, or form, just like we do with missionaries all across the world. And I think we need to think of it in those terms instead of just this idea that we all need to go and kind of, uh, you know, save the day wherever we, you know, it doesn't make sense for us to go into Savannah. We have our own community here to serve and to work in and to um, to be applying, you know, the gospel principles in. So, um, but we do need to work for the welfare of the city. When the uh, Israelites were in exile, uh, God called them to, to do that, to plant gardens, to marry their children off, to work for the welfare of the very city that they knew they'd be leaving in 70 years. Um, and so we do need to take that seriously. But at, at the end of the day, if we're living as faithful Christians, using our gifts to fulfill what God has called us to as the church, um, then we'll see these things in, uh, inherently taking place through our relationships, our workplaces, and all of that as well. But there is a place to be intentional about it. And we just have to be honest as the church and realize that we are in a post-Christian society, and there's other countries that are now talking about sending missionaries to the United States on a regular basis, and a lot of them are. They see who we are and what we call Christianity, and they're saying, those people need the gospel. And so they're sending missionaries to us. And, uh, and so we'll probably see some of that work that we will be able to support in the next couple decades as well. Yeah. Just really quick. We're unique. And I mm-hmm. say Ephesus and Christ Center Reformed Baptist Church yeah. because we have that close proximity where we can work that way. But if, for example, there were no Christ Center Reformed Baptist Churches, uh, sure. Baptist Church in Savannah, and all they have is the prosperity gospel, then who goes? Yeah, well, then we don't have a choice, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we need to raise up people and send them out to do the work. Uh, that's, we want to work first and foremost with what's there and what's available, but if nothing is, then we go. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, you know, that's the approach we've taken with Nigeria, same kind of idea. So. Um, all right, is there a way that I should hear the phrase white privilege and not be offended by the implications of that claim? And as Christians, should we even use that kind of language? <laughs> white privilege. White guilt, white privilege, white power, right? So you, we've heard these phrases throughout, throughout the um, decades. And when, we, when everyone uses this phrase, white privilege, everyone has a different take on it. I'll tell you what I understand white privilege to be and what I think about the term. I understand white privilege not to be something that's added to a person that's white, but, but the lack of what is attached to their person. So, in some sense, maybe when I'm viewed, 
you know, I am viewed in a particular, something is, is, is added to me, some suspicion. You say, well, that seems crazy. Well, I'm not saying that in every case. I am just saying that in some cases, I've experienced that a particular suspicion has been attached to me. Brother Tomei, when we were, and I say Tomei, it could be Tomei, uh, when we were eating, he lived in a pretty, and I quote, posh area of, of the UK. And he said specifically, he didn't walk with the hoodie on, not because he didn't like hoodies, but he didn't walk with the hoodie on because he didn't want to get whatever yeah. in his community. So I don't think white privilege is something that's added to anyone as much as, as, much as it's the lack of what's attached to them. Um, that word, white privilege, probably does raise the eyebrows of, of reverse bigotry, I think. Um, a person can't help that they're born black or white or, or Asian or a, a, a man or a woman. You, you are that because God, because God made you that. So there should be no guilt or no feeling of, uh, that you should apologize to one person or feel inferior to another person because you're black or apologize for being white. None of that should None of that should take place. And I, no, I don't think that in, in general, uh, if that phrase is attached to you, you should walk away and feel okay about it. Especially if, um, you know, as a Christian, everything that you do is to promote the gospel. And it's, I can use you specifically, only because we're sitting here, um, the great work that you've done, not only in, in our city, right, but what God has led you to do across the, the globe in Africa. Uh, having a fantastic presence there. Why should, why should you, you know, be accosted with the term, you know, to state that you have white privilege? So again, I don't think white privilege is something that is added to us. Now, I could take that over into a more secular sense, but I'm speaking specifically in the church. Um, there's a particular benefit of the doubt if, if you went to a certain place, and I can name several places in Savannah that, you know, if a person of, of, of my skin tone went, um, I pretty much would be, you know, somewhat suspect. Um, if I am pulled over because I drive the car that I drive and I'm asked, hey, is that car stolen? Uh, you ran the tag. Of course it's not stolen. Um, and that's a reality that we live in. I don't think that every white person I meet after that should apologize for what a crazy person did on that day. Um, because the same officer, as, as I stated to you before, that pulled me over, um, he, was one, he was one person. But if I get in an accident and I call the officer, I want him to be there. You know, so you, know, you, have, to, you have to weigh it to judge idiots by what they do um, and not a whole population group of people, and that goes both ways. So, no, I don't think there's a way that you should hear that and not feel offended. As a Christian, um, we shouldn't use those divisive terms at all because it doesn't work for the, for the greater whole of unity. So no, I don't think that term should be used among Christians. We can't stop the world from using it, but amongst Christians, no. Yeah, in the church, no. our focus. Good. All right. Hopefully that was speedy enough. Um, <clears throat> can the church ever move past ethnic differences? If so, how do we start? Well, we have to. Um, (laughs) the church must. A society apart from Christ won't, but the church has to. We don't have 
we don't have the choice not to as a body of Christ, as brothers and sisters in Christ. How do we do it? Through discussions like this, continued dialogue, continuing to be honest with each other. I think something as Christians especially we need to be very um, sure of is that we're being patient with one another. We are not loaded up and ready to take offense at everything that's said. We want to help each other to understand one another. Um, every time something's said, I don't want to lash out and just, you know, go off the handle and um, say, and I need to give my brothers and sisters the benefit of the doubt. And I need to come alongside them and help them if they're not understanding something. And so putting off offense, putting on patience, um, and the fruit of the Spirit as I walk with my brothers and sisters. So um, at the end of the day, we need to abandon the cultural narrative on the whole and adopt a biblical narrative and filter everything through the Scriptures and, and stop sounding like the world. And I think that's a big problem in the church. Um, we sound a lot like the world sometimes in these discussions. And if we continue that, um, we're never in the church going to move beyond it. But if we can abandon that and say, here's who we are together, collectively, uh, in Christ, then uh, we, have no, we have no reason why we should be hindered from uh, being able to uh, continue doing things like this and joining together for uh, fellowship and communion together. There should be nothing in our way for that. Um, well, how does a biblical theology of suffering and um, uh, submission play into um, all, of, uh, all of these uh, issues we've talked about, particularly ethnic unity within the church, regardless of what's going on in our culture? Oh, wow. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're teaching through the book of First Peter, which is a book that is, you know, engulfed in a suffering Christian. And the narrative of the suffering Christian there is that they're under the oppression of, of Nero. So as Christians, uh, you know, they're facing uh, ethnic persecution to a degree, um, depending on their background, if, especially if they were Jews at the time. Uh, they're suffering persecution for their, for their faith. Um, so they're existing in a city with Romans, and um, yet they're being isolated and persecuted. Um, so the biblical narrative of, of uh, theology of suffering is that any suffering that finds its way in our life finds its way there because God sent it. And that's the first thing we've got to understand and, and, and reckon it to be uh, that God has sent it. Um, what then is our response must be uh, uh, the next step. How do we respond to the suffering that God sends our way? Well, he tells us in his word how to respond, to rejoice to be exceedingly joyful. Uh, I was preaching today on this, the suffering uh, and reign uh, with Christ. Uh, Spurgeon uh, in 1 Peter 1 and 7 says something that I think is pretty interesting. He says that the, that the Christian's uh, life is like a, a dual current sea um, on its surface. Uh, it is full of heaviness with dark billowing uh, uh, swells, but beneath the surface they're full of joy, so that becomes the cross current of the Christian life. On the top it is heaviness, but, but below it is rejoicing. Um, so, you know, when we look at our suffering, we must know that our God has sent it into our life to conform us into the image and likeness of his Son, and we should rejoice in our God and our Christ. Um, 
while at the same time, you know, Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 28, that if you are a slave, and, by, and of course the insinuation is by peaceable means, if you can gain your freedom legally, then do so. Mm-hmm. So rejoice in Christ despite the situation, and if you can find freedom from that uh, in a God-glorifying way, then do so. Yeah. Um, and, and submit to the authorities um, in light of how the Scripture teaches us. Uh, so the Scripture teaches us that we are to not only submit to them, but we are to pray for them. Uh, we are to uh, pray for their spiritual condition. We are to pray for their spiritual wisdom. Uh, the Bible says that. And I'll tell you, being on the oppressed end of it, I think that's where the, the hard part is, right? So it's easy. Some would look out and say, well, it's easy to say because you're white and you're the majority. Um, and because you've always been a majority, it's easy for you to say, suffer well, my brother. Um, but building a biblical theology in light of suffering, we can now take our ethnicity out of it. And we, we see that, that God is sovereign. And uh, if one does oppress me, the Bible tells me how to deal with it. As a matter of fact, Peter says it this way. What good is it if when you do wrongly and you are beaten for it, you endure it? Isn't it more gracious? Isn't it more gracious to endure the suffering for the sake of Christ? Isn't it more God-glorifying to do so? And I'll tell you, it's good. It's good when you hear it. And I think sometimes ethnically being on a recipient end of it, sometimes it's difficult. And that's where the tension starts to expand in the church because though we're Christians, um, we still face that. But that's why we must continue to hear the gospel. Uh, The gospel must liberate me from my flesh because my flesh says, fight, fight, fight. But it is the gospel that says, no, no, no. Live out the gospel before your community. Amen. Well, can we, uh, let's end on that note. Okay, that's so fine. So we're, time's running. I think the gospel's a good note to end on. Yeah. Um, and that really is what unifies us. That's what brings us together tonight. That's what continues to hold us together in relationships. Um, I hope that the conversation is helpful. Um, I hope it gets us all thinking and that this is just kind of the beginning, that we continue to talk about these things together. Um, and that as we engage in these conversations, as we watch the news, as we hear things, that we're thinking right back to the gospel. How are we as God's people to respond to all of these issues? Um, and that we have the dialogue among ourselves uh, continuing as well, that we're not afraid to talk about them. Some of these things, uh, maybe you feel uncomfortable or awkward even talking about it and bringing it up. Um, uh, my wife and I joke sometimes we'll hear people and they'll talk and when they say the word, when they talk about black people, they whisper. Um, <laughs> and it's like, why, why are we doing that? Let's have a conversation. Let's be open. Let's have these dialogues. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, uh, we as a church especially should be able to do that safely uh, with one another and help each other along.